Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller, CEO of Access Entertainment, and your host for Media Mavens Podcast. Here with my co-host, Joe Pirates. What's up, Joey? Oh, just 115 here in Tucson. How's it going for you? <laughs> I'm, I'm hanging out on the probably 89 degree LA weather. Well, I'm always talking about temperature. I don't know why. It's if you're opening all, all of our podcast openings are the how the hot weather, the weather, sports, and, and it's weather. like if if it's raining, you'll see me dancing. <laughs> That'll never happen. Ah, you never know. Okay, but I'm super excited. Speaking of weather, I'm so happy to have like a very dear friend of mine, my easy girl, Alice Levine on the show. Allison, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. So great to reconnect with you after all these I years. I know, I'm so excited because like, this is so Bye. exciting because like you are the first American woman-led expedition team. You led this team up to Mount Everest and like you are such a badass. I am like, you're such an inspiration woman. You didn't just lead like this woman's team up Mount Everest, which we're going to talk about the journey on that. You skied the North and South Pole. I did. I That's did. That's just crazy. And I'm joking. I was joking with you like a while ago. We we're chatting. You've done some most badass stuff, but then you don't know how to snowboard. So I'm taking snowboarding <laughs> lessons with you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. I'm in. We're doing it. But okay. And you got your book out. Like, like, this, like it's been a tough year with COVID. I know I'm just excited to catch up with you on everything. I haven't talked to you in so long, but you've done such tremendous stuff out there. Tell us about what happened and this whole journey. Why did you decide, of all things, to go scale up Mount Everest? You led your team of people, which shows insane determination and leadership skills, which is impressive. But like, give us some background on background. This. Okay, so as you know, I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, and when oh, I yeah, was younger, give, have to give you applause for that. We have an AZ team on the podcast. Let's hear it for Phoenix. Born and raised in Phoenix, and. When I was younger, I was always very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers, the early mountaineers. And I would read these books and I'd watch documentary films. I think because it felt like an escape from the oppressive August, you know, July and August heat. So I'd like to... I like to read books and watch films about these really cold places. and But I never actually thought I would go to those places because I had some health challenges. I was born with a hole in my heart. So I was born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older. I had one surgery when I was 17. And then one when I was 30. And then one more when I was 44. And But anyway, after my second heart surgery, this light bulb hey, went... You are okay now, though. Yeah, I'm good now. Okay. Yeah, thanks. After my second heart surgery, this light bulb went on in my head and I thought, okay, if I want to know what it's like to be, you know, this this explorer, Reinhold Messner and drag a 150 pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice, then I should go go to Antarctica and try instead of just reading books about it. If I want to know what it's like to be these mountaineers going to these remote mountain ranges and I should go to the mountain ranges instead of just watching documentary films about them. And if these other guys can do this stuff, you know, why can't I do it too? So I didn't climb my first mountain until I was 32 years old because I had to wait until my health was stable enough. So I climbed my first mountain at 32 and everything just kind of snowballed from there. So you did the seven summits. That I Mount did. Everest, right? That's Mount yes. Everest. Wait, like, uh, so the seven summits are the, the highest peak on all seven continents. 
Hmm. So that's what the seven summits is. So and, and you've then, done how many have you done? I've done all seven. That's what I thought. And then so when you do, when you climb the highest peak on all seven continents, complete the seven summits, and then you ski to the North and South Pole, it's called the Adventure Grand Slam. So I think there's about 20 people in the world now who've completed the Adventure Grand Slam. But back when I finished it in 2010, there were only, you know, a couple of us. So you scaled up Everest. You led the team up there, team captain. I, I mean, that, I mean, we see so many stories of people like just their personal journey of, you know, not giving up, of being the team leader. There's so much personal stories and emotions that come out of that. You, I mean, that's like, and that's one of the most, isn't it my correct, the most dangerous summits to climb. I mean, you just, some people have lost their lives. They couldn't make it down. They didn't make it up. It's such a defeat, but it's yeah. such you know, a challenge, the fact they even made it as far as they did. I mean, and I've seen stories and documentaries on it. I mean, what, I mean, what was that particular one that made you decide to lead a team up? Yeah. So you're right. I mean, hundreds of people have died on that mountain. Yeah. Uh, and it is quite dangerous. There's another, other mountains that have a, a higher fatality rate overall, but you know, I, I got a phone call in 2001. I got a phone call from some women who were thinking about putting t- this expedition together. And they asked me if I wanted to be the team captain. And initially when I got the phone call, I said, no, just because, you know, I just, even though I had climbed the highest peak on six continents, you know, by that time and had done a lot of other climbing in between, I still felt like, I wasn't going to be good enough. I wasn't going to be fast enough. I wasn't going to be strong enough. You know, just all this doubt kind of crept into my head. But then I realized, you know, there's only going to be one first American women's Everest expedition. And if I didn't step up to the plate to be the team captain, you know, somebody else was going to do it. Somebody else was going to be living my dream adventure. And I think there are times in your life where you just have to step up, even if you feel like you aren't ready. And so how, I mean, but that was grueling training, right? I mean, was it, it was like, did he's like, was a year long training or did you train up there then over time work your way up? So it was pretty grueling training. So the other people on the team, there were four other women on the team with me and they all lived in Colorado or Washington state. So very close to high mountains. Yeah. For me, I was living in this, in San Francisco at the time. So the closest mountain where I could really train properly was Mount Shasta. It was about a five or six hour drive from where I was living at the time. So I would just drive up there on the weekends for months and months and months. I would just drive up there by myself. I would start at the in the parking lot about 11 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock or midnight. And I would climb with a heavy pack. I would climb through the whole night. And with a heavy pack, it would take me you know, 16, 18 hours because I wanted to climb through the night because not only did I need to condition my body to climb, you know, uphill with a pack in my crampons, with my ice axe at altitude, but I also wanted to practice sleep deprivation because a lot of times when you're on a big mountain, your summit day is going to be 18, 20, 24 or more hours and you have to be able to keep going. So I wanted to push through the night. I wanted to climb with no sleep. I wanted to practice sleep deprivation. Now, look, back then, we didn't know as much as we do now about the detrimental effects of sleep deprivation, right? It's not It's not healthy to be purposely going without sleep multiple times. But that's just what I wanted to do to prepare so that I would know how far I could push myself 
in situations where I was completely deprived of sleep. I didn't want to be nervous on some day thinking like, can I really climb for 20 hours with no sleep? Like I want to be like, yeah, I do this all the time. I'm Mount Shasta. I can, I can handle this. So but it's, I did. Slow, but, but it's a slow, I mean, you're not just like, like when I've done like um, Franklin Canyon down here and all this stuff and all the climbing and the stairs are colder. I mean, you know, we're powering up it. When you're up there at the altitude and all those heavy packs, like one wrong move. And then I know you could crash down through glaciers and I suppose, I mean, it's not easy. It's to me, it just seems scary as hell, but if you're sleep deprived, is it adrenaline that kept you going when you guys are up there or is it like, Oh shit, if I fall asleep or just doze off, you know, I'm done. I mean, I think the fear in itself is what keeps you awake. The fear. Yes. So I always tell people, it's okay to feel scared on that mountain because there's a lot of scary stuff on the mountain. And and I think when you feel scared, it just means you're paying attention. I just learned to use fear to my advantage because fear keeps me awake, alert, aware of everything going on around me. Fear is fine. It's complacency that puts you at risk, right? If you are not, if you do not continue to move and act and react when you're in these environments like Everest, where things around you are constantly shifting and changing, that's what puts you at risk. And trust me, it's hard to keep going because, oh, when you stop and you sit down, it just feels so much better. You just feel so peaceful. You're like, oh my God. You know, when you're up there in the death zone, you're taking five to 10 breaths for every step. So think about that. Five to 10 breaths for one step, just to catch your breath enough to take one step. So you're always winded and you're always tired. And when you sit down, you're like, oh God, this feels so much better. And that's how, you know, a lot of people die that way because they sit down and they don't get back up. You have to get back up. And the other thing you have to remember, and this is where a lot of people get into trouble on the mountain. You have to remember that the summit is only the halfway point. The summit is never the goal. The summit is halfway because you have to be able to get yourself back down the mountain safely. So a lot of deaths occur because people use everything they've got in them to get themselves to the top. And they forget that they still need the energy reserves to get themselves back down. Is that why you said, you know, when they just sit there and like, oh, this is so good. They're so exhausted. They fall asleep and freeze to death. Is that majority of it as it sounds kind of well you can fall asleep and you can if you're dressed properly you hopefully won't freeze to death but you can run out of oxygen the tricky thing is you have a finite amount of oxygen and the slower you go the faster you're going to burn through that oxygen so you have to manage your oxygen supply and make sure that you have enough to get yourself to the top and get yourself back down. So if you're taking too many rest breaks, you're going to burn through your oxygen before. Yeah, before but you're, you're, you're always in pairs. They, you never, nobody climbs alone. You're always in a team and in pairs for that reason. Not necessarily. There are people like Reinhold Messner, who is the most accomplished modern day explorer. He was the first guy to climb Everest solo and without oxygen. He's one tough bastard, this guy. I think that was his, his probably his nickname in elementary school, but he he climbed it without oxygen. He was How first guy possible? to climb solo Because you're so high up there, you need the oxygen reserve. Was he just like a super Superman fit? Like he trained? Yeah, you have to be super fit. I mean, there's people that there's usually a couple people that climb it without oxygen every year. And they are like superhuman strength climbers. I mean, it's really hard. There was a guy who was 
going to try to do it this this past season, Colin O'Brady, but he ended up using it at the last minute. It is it is hard to do it without oxygen, but you know, there's definitely there are people that have done it. How do you use your oxygen in that? I mean, do you have a, you must have a tank with you. I yeah, imagine. it's a tank that's in your backpack. How, so, how much does that weigh? Because I mean, I think you're going for the lightest pack you can altogether. Yeah. So <laughs> good question. In 2002, when I was part of the American Women's Everest Expedition, we had these really old aluminum tanks. I think they weighed 17 pounds. Almost everyone else on the mountain had these Russian tanks made. I think they're titanium and they were like Mm -hmm. seven pounds. So our tanks really slowed us down quite a bit. But when I went back in 2010, I used the lighter like titanium tank. And it makes it every pound makes a difference. Every pound makes a difference. With that, Allison. What is your breathing like when you're climbing? When do you start to use the oxygen? Is it something that you use intermittently or is it something that you use continually? So you start using it. Most people start using it from about 24,000 feet onward. Now, I have heard of people that start using it at base camp and people that start using it at 21,000 feet and 22,000 feet and and. You know, if you can afford it, there's, you know, people that wealthy people that go there and they can afford like a big team of Sherpas that help them and carry all this extra oxygen. And it's way easier, but it's still a hard climb. Like people like to criticize those people and I get it. You know, I get it. Like we all kind of want to feel like we're on even ground when we're climbing, but there's no rule book. So when, when people talk about, oh yeah, this guy, he, you know, he cheated. He started using oxygen from camp two. I'm like, well, where's the rule book that says it's cheating? Like, I don't like it either. You know, I feel like it's making the climb a lot easier, but who am I to make the, I'm not making the rules, right? I mean, Wait, how many base camps are there before you get to the... So there's one base camp and that's where you leave. Like that's where it's pretty comfortable. You've got like a big mess tent and everybody comes together for the meals. And that's where you can have like a fat, you know, air mattress and even a pillow. And it's more comfortable there. And almost everyone gets their own tent at base camp. But once you start moving up the mountain, then you don't have all the luxuries that you have at base camp. And usually you're sharing a tent with at least one other person, sometimes more. So there's base camp and then there's on the on the south side of the mountain, which is the, the side I climb from, the Nepal side. There's base camp, then there's camp one, camp two, camp three. Camp four. So there's a base camp and then four camps above base camp on the Nepal side. Now, when you guys do that oxygen, and I, I, I imagine it's just, is it intermittent or is it continual? Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, it's continual. It's continual. It, once okay. you get to once you get to camp three and you're going from camp three to camp four, you you most people use it from there. Okay. And then another question with that. In addition to doing Shasta and and, yeah. and doing that. What else is in your workout routine in San Francisco? I mean, do you use one of those tubes that that does cut off the oxygen to a certain level? No, but I'll tell you my training, looking back on it, I was like, what was I thinking? But I was working full time and we, you know, we got the Ford Motor Company sponsored our trip. So we had our trip paid for, but they didn't 
actually agree to sponsor until the last minute. So in the meantime, I was still pitching sponsors, trying to raise the money for the trip because it's $25,000 person. None of us could afford it. We had to get a sponsor. So I was, but I was working full time. So I'd work all day and I would come home at like 6.30 and then I would start pitching potential sponsors because if we didn't raise the funds, the trip wasn't going to happen. So I was pitching sponsors and then I was also trying to raise money for a cancer research grant for this organization called the V Foundation that's out of North Carolina for Jimmy V. Yeah, so, so I did all that. And by the time... I was done with all that. It was like 11 o'clock at night. And so, and I had, I was always at my desk by six, which meant like I was up at 4.30, out the door at 5.30. So I had between like 11 and 4 a.m. to sleep and work out. So I would go to 24-hour fitness because they're open 24 hours. And I would do cardio I'd get on cardio equipment that I could do with my eyes closed. And I would try to convince myself that I was sleeping and working out at the same time. So I would like get on the bike and be like, I am the master multitasker. Here I am working out, working out, working out and sleeping. I'm so good at this. But obviously I was not working out efficiently and of course not sleeping. So then I'd get to work and I would just basically just want to cry from exhaustion, you know, and, you know, I'd be in the bathroom and I would literally like, there were times where I just went in the bathroom, saw and just started crying because I was so tired. And that's why I was like, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep doing this. I'm going to drop dead. And so that's when I just decided I was going to focus all my training on the weekends and just climb Mount Shasta on the weekends. And basically not, I really did not do much during the week, except for there was one other thing I did. Again, I was kind of proud of myself for multitasking, but I would do wall sits. Okay. In the morning when I was getting ready, you know, wall sits, like it just is a total quad burn. So what I would do is I would take a shower and I've, I've normally like super frizzy hair. So I would blow dry it in the morning before work every day. And so what I would do is I would do a wall sit while I was blow drying my hair. And I would tell myself as, as soon as I got out of the sit position, I would have to turn off the blow dryer and just go to work with my hair like that. And so it was incentive to stay in that seated position. Otherwise, my hair was all over the place. So I was like, I got to stay. I got to stay seated. So I would do well since while I was blow drying my hair. That's what I did to strengthen my legs during the week. And then went up to Shasta on the weekends. You are a badass. <laughs> so I think I'm just an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> A very, very good one. Now you, so you, you led this team up. So all the teams, you, you need to have a leader. You know, obviously leadership is based on strength, leadership. I mean, team efforts. I mean, there's so much that goes into being a leader character that it defines who you are, respect from the team. You want to be that team leader. Yeah. And they followed you up. So that meant you're at the top to really keep the team together mentally, physically, emotionally, keep them going as a team. But were you the one actually leading first up the summit? Well, so first of all, part of being a strong leader is to get people to keep going when they think they can't, right? Is to give people that encouragement. But I will tell you that we actually, the first American Women's Everest Expedition, We didn't make it on that trip. In 2002, we had to turn back 
about 275 feet from the summit. So you're on that mountain for two months. That's how long an Everest expedition takes. And we missed the top by... Wait, wait, that, that's from the time you get to base camp to you hit the very... Well, it's from the time you start. It's going to take you 10 days to two weeks to hike into base camp. And then you have to regulate because of the altitude and stuff. For and then days. you're, you don't just climb. So once you get to base camp, you don't just climb up the mountain. You climb like a little bit of the ways up and you come back down. It's called acclimatization. You have to give your body time to get used to the altitude very slowly, produce more red blood cells that are going to carry oxygen throughout your body to your extremities so you can climb, you know, you can maintain some strength and feel better as you're ascending. So you go, you go up and then you come back down and you climb a bit higher and then you come back down. So you don't just climb up the mountain. You're going up and back, up and back because you have to give your body time to get used to that altitude. So the whole trip altogether is about two months. So we got to within 275 feet from the summit and bad weather came in and we had to turn around just a couple hundred feet from the top. And it was really, really hard because first of all, we were the first American women's Everest expedition. We were sponsored by Ford, an amazing company that came in and got behind us and sponsored our trip. And because we're the first American women's Everest expedition, we had a ton of media coverage. 450 media outlets followed our climb and then we didn't make it. So after we didn't make it, we had to come back and do this big media tour because before we left, we did the whole morning show circuit and the evening news anchors were interviewing us. Media outlets are doing live updates from the mountain and we miss the top. So you have to go back and talk about this big public failure. And it just felt like a punch in the gut because everybody was so focused on the fact that we didn't make it. We got so close and we did not get there. And, you know, nobody really focused on the fact that we were the first team of American women to try something like this. Nobody brought up the fact that it was an altitude record for every single member of our team. They just kept saying like, oh man, how does it feel to get that close and, and not make it? And you're like, it feels shitty. Like, how do you think it feels? But so it took me about eight years to get up my guts to go back and try it again. And I did make it to the summit on my second attempt in 2010. And it's interesting because we had equally poor weather in 2010 on my summit day, but I felt like I had learned so much from my previous expedition. I knew so much more about my pain threshold, my risk tolerance. I knew what it felt like to be high up on that mountain in a storm. And I wasn't afraid of it the second time around. Like I was scared up there the first time around, but on the second time around, what I realized is, you know, you can be scared and brave at the same time. You can, you can be scared and brave at the same time. That's really what helped me keep going in 2010, where I, you know, turned back on your own. Did you go with the team or did you go So I was one person on a permit with eight other people, but we were not an official team like we were in 2002, where we went to the mountain together and we were sponsored by Ford. And it's interesting because what I learned is that, like, I just assumed, okay, you know, in 2010, I'm climbing with these eight other people. and This is my team, these people I'm climbing the mountain with. But what I learned is that just because you're doing something at the same time with a group of people, right, climbing Mount Everest, Even if you all have the exact same goal, you know, get to the top of the mountain, get back down alive. It doesn't make you a team. It just makes you a group of people doing something at the same time. And I think that's really different from being a team. And I think what makes you a team is when the people in the group care as much about 
helping the people around them achieve a goal as they care about achieving it themselves. And I missed that sense of team camaraderie that I had in 2002 with the American Women's Everest Expedition. Now that said, there were definitely some people in my group in 2010 that were amazing teammates that I would love to climb with again, that were very selfless and went out of their way to help other people in the group. But there were you know, also a few that just didn't seem to give a shit about anybody else. And that was tough to take because when you're in a remote extreme environment, emotions run very high and you want to feel like the people around you are all looking out for one another. Okay. Yeah. Was it, was that the hardest thing on the second go about not having like your teammates and your closest friends are with you? Cause you got to realize like, it was a lot of stuff they say, this is really back in Paris to now, like with scuba diving, you should always have to have a diving partner. You run out, your tank goes low, things that could happen underwater. You got to rely on somebody who's always going to have your back. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing, just going down underwater versus climbing up a huge ice mountain. But like, was that fear? Is that like the fear factor, or is it? I mean, because I know there's a percentage of deaths that, in general, ever says the percentage of people don't make it up, don't make it down. Here's the top three or four factors why. Because I always think the biggest one would be that emotional. Keep going, like you said. Be aware. Yeah. So you have somebody has your back, so you don't freak out while you're up there and then slide off the edge somewhere. So the hard part is, first of all, you're you're up at altitude. You're in this area. Once you get above twenty six thousand feet, and there's there's fourteen mountains in the world that are over twenty six thousand feet. It's about eight thousand meters. Once you get to that elevation, it's what's known. You're in what's known as the death zone, and they call it the death zone for a really good reason. And that's because you know at twenty six thousand feet, you know eight thousand meters. That's where the human body is actually slowly starting to die. Human life cannot be sustained at that altitude. So that's why most people use oxygen. You don't want to spend that much time up in the death zone. But your judgment, your brain is affected. You are hypoxic. The way your brain functions, you cannot think as clearly. You are not necessarily, you're not in a great position to be making critical decisions. And that's the the irony of it is you're in this situation that's life and death and your brain is starved of oxygen. And so people also, they get summit fever, right? And they see the summit, oh, the summit's only another couple hundred feet. But when you're up there in the death zone, you're, you're moving so slowly that it could be several hours away. And so people are so, they get this summit fever and they feel like, oh, I've got, you know, I feel like I could keep going for another three hours. I've got three hours in me. And they do. But then they don't have any anything left to get themselves back down. So the majority of deaths occur because people use you know poor judgment. There's also obviously like falling is a yeah. risk up there. So that's a cause of death too. People is, falling and slipping. Is, is, and is it harder going up or coming down physically and emotionally? So for me, I think it's harder going up because I do often have those doubts still that say like, oh, you're not fast enough. You're not fast enough. You're not good enough. You know, all those doubts creep in, but you realize like you you don't have to be the best and the fastest. You just have to be willing to endure pain and you have to be relentless about putting one foot in front of the other. It's not necessarily the best climbers that are getting to the top. It's the people, like I said, who will endure pain and who will keep going, who will keep walking. So for me, I... I'm very aware, like once I get to top, I know like most of the deaths occur on the way down. And then I start to like really pull my head together and go, okay, you got to pull together. You got to concentrate on every single step. 
be purposeful in every step so you don't slide off or you know make a have a misstep. So for me, I think going up is harder because I just still hear those doubts of like you're not going to be good fast enough, you're not going to be strong enough, but just realizing you don't have to be the the fastest and the strongest. The other thing for me is just instead of feeling overwhelmed about the summit, I'll just find a landmark that looks closer. Like I'll take my headlamp because you climb in the dark on summer day. I'll take my headlamp and I'll just shine it on a big boulder that's down the trail and I'll stare at the boulder and think, okay, I'm not even going to think about the summit right now. I'm just focused on getting to that boulder. And that's what I'm doing right now. And so I get to the boulder. And then once I got to that boulder, I get to another boulder. I get to a big you know, chunk of ice or anything that looked like it wasn't that far away. And each time I could get to another landmark, it built my confidence to keep going. You know, like I said, your mind can go to a very dark place and it's really easy to think I can't do it. I need to turn around. I don't have what it takes. Also, the other reason a lot of people keep pushing past their point where they should turn around is because for most people, they've worked really hard to get there. They had to scrounge and find a sponsor or they saved their money for so long and they just took two months off of work and they're not going to get two months off again. You know, and they had to get their family on board with them being gone for two months and who, you know, someone's covering for them at home and somebody's covering for them at the office. And it's, it's just not that easy. And so you feel this pressure to make it happen. You feel this pressure to summit. Now, like there are always people on the mound that were like, oh yeah, my parents will pay for it. If I don't make it this time, my parents will pay for me to come back next year. And you're like, oh, I hate you. There's always those people out there too. And so the stakes for them aren't as high because somebody else is going to pay for them to come back or they're independently wealthy. So they can fund as many trips there as they want. And they had their trainer and their coach, you know, their climbing coach and their nutritionist and their special doctors and like all the people to help them reach this elite level. And so it's easy to get kind of psyched out when you're surrounded by people like that, where you're like, okay, I had to scrounge for a sponsor and I had to do all my training on my own. And it's now or never for me. I'm not going to be able to come back here, but you have to stop playing the comparison game because that's just negative energy. And that takes away from your focus. And you just have to realize that the mountain doesn't care who has money and who doesn't and who had special training and who didn't. Like Once you get there, it's all about just putting one foot in front of the other. Now, let's go to the uh, skiing across the Antarctic and the Arctic. Uh I mean, to me, that would be just a mental mind game, basically, of trying to stay sane when you see nothing there. Yes. So that's part of the challenge. It's interesting. There's something called polar madness where people actually lose their minds because of the lack of stimulation once you're there. For me, I'll tell you the North Pole. Here's something that's really hard about the North Pole. So the South Pole's in Antarctica, right? So it's on a landmass. So it's mostly ice. Antarctica's 98% ice, 2% rock, but it's solid, solid mass. So you're skiing on solid ground. The North Pole is just the point at 90 degrees north up in the Arctic Circle. And so you're skiing across floating ice versus skiing across solid land. And what happens is you ski for 12 to 15 hours, you are completely exhausted. You pitch your tent, you set up camp, you cook your dinner, you fall in your sleeping bag, you finally get to sleep, which isn't easy because it's 24 hours of sunlight. Mm-hmm. And so you're, you know, it's hard to fall asleep. So you finally fall asleep and you wake up in the morning. And like I said, you're, you're just skiing across floating ice and you, so it drifts. 
you wake up in the morning and you have drifted in the wrong direction. And now you are further away than you were the day before when you started. So your progress can be completely, completely erased. And that is something that is really difficult to wrap your head around when you're on a trip like that. How long did it take you? I mean, you were cross-country skiing, obviously. You weren't downhill skiing. Yeah. I mean, it's, what's, it's hard to do cross-country skiing. How long, if, if it's you're floating away from where you need to be, so how long did it take you to get back to where you The North to be? Pole, our team on the North Pole did what they call it the last degree. So it's you just ski the last like 60, not 60 degrees to the pole. It took us about two weeks. My South Pole expedition, I did, it was 600 miles starting from the edge of the Antarctic continent all the way to the South Pole, dragging a heavy sled. So with all our, you know, the, all your gear and supplies in a sled that's harnessed your waist, that one was uh, almost two months. Oh my God, I'm so in love with you right now, Al. Like, and I've known you since we were like, I think in eighth grade, you are just such an inspiration. And I, I want to talk from, you know, because I don't want to run out of time here. This journey you've been on, because I mean, I, we've known each other for so long. Yeah. This is amazing. We've been catching up, you know, a lot lately. The book On the Edge is a book that I actually am planning on getting. I have to get this book. Was this book, I want to have you on the podcast first before I got the yeah. book, because I, you know, wanted to make sure I talked to you. Yeah. This book is about your journey and what you've been through, but like what you're saying, everything you've talked about, like, I mean, that is a true leader. You're, you're making sure your team knows how great they are, that, you know, you're helping them move to the next step. It's one step at a time. It's not overthinking things. It's like conquering what's in front of you, building up to conquer the next step. I mean, you have such yeah. tremendous leadership. And every chapter in the book has a different story. So you can read a chapter and put the book down and pick it up again in, in the future and read another chapter. So each, journey, right? But it's about your whole journey of leading. Yeah, so on the, it's called On the Edge, Leadership Lessons from Mount Everest and Other Extreme Environments. And every chapter is about an expedition and lessons I learned on that expedition. And it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's <laughs> things that went well and things that did not go well and things that I regretted. And you know, poor decisions that were made. And so I, I just wanted to share everything. I wanted to share the, the times where I was a good leader and the times where I wasn't, you know, where I wish I could go back and do things differently. Yeah. But that's like all good leaders. They understand where they failed and they rebuild stronger, better. Exactly. That's that so important. What because, you just said. When I, like when I was so funny, cause I did a business book of all things last during COVID on how to thrive and survive into the technology. And every time I talk to anybody in PR, the worst thing is always, you never lead with your ego. And there's so many people who think they can lead with their ego and just say, here's who I am. Here's what to do because I have this title. That's not a leader. You can't use your, your ego gets in the way. Ego right. creates failure. It doesn't create success. Well, it's interesting because, so Coach K, who actually wrote the forward for my book, and I'm devastated that he's retiring after next season. But Coach K really taught me to look at ego differently. And I write about this a little bit in the book and he talks about it in the forward too. That, so when he was coaching the US national team, he said what he looked for was ego. And I was like, right, because you don't want that. That just gets in the way. And he's like, no, I want an ego because he said there's two kinds of ego that he looks for that he really likes. One is what he calls performance ego. He said, I want people who are good and who know that they're good. He said, I, I don't want LeBron James to come out onto the court and be a wisp. I need him to have all of the confidence that goes with him. He said, ego doesn't necessarily mean self-importance or you treat people poorly, but in his view, ego just means I'm good and I know that I'm good. And he said, the second kind of ego that he looks for 
is what he calls team ego. And he said, I want people on my team who will put the team's interest in front of their own interests, right? Where name on the front of the uniform, Team USA is more important than the name on the back of the uniform. He said, I want people who are going to be proud to be a part of something that collectively feels more important than the individuals alone. And that made sense to me too, because I wanted... You know, I wanted women who were going to be proud to be a part of the first American women's Everest expedition and wear the American flag on their sleeve. And, you know, I can honestly say if I had to pull together another team of women, it would probably be the exact same one. How are you applying all of these skill sets? I mean, this applies to everyday life of people that are executives in business, working with teams, being asked to step up and work as part of a team. And I know you're doing a lot of speaking engagements. Are you using all this to say, hey, given this journey, their basic steps of what makes a good leader and how to apply it into your real life? Is that where? Yeah, I'm I mean, I'm fortunate in that I stay pretty busy. I do about 100 keynote speeches a year and I've been almost all virtual since COVID. But tomorrow I leave for Florida, my first in-person speech since COVID hit. There's so many lessons that apply to the business world and just everyday life about how Like you cannot control the environment. All you can do is control the way you react to it. And also, I think we learned since COVID started that whatever plan, you know, it's it's obviously it's important to plan, right? You want to have a plan. Planning keeps you organized, keeps you on track. But what you have to remember is that when you are in environments that are constantly shifting and changing, which is what we've had since COVID, right? Normally, it's the environments I'm in, in the mountains, in these polar landscapes. Things are shifting and changing, but now it's everybody's environment, right? The business, everyday life and the business world. It's important to plan, but what you have to remember is that whatever plan you came up with, you know, last year, last month, last week, this morning, your plan is already outdated as soon as it's finished when you're in environments that are constantly shifting and changing. So yes, you know, continue to plan, but you you cannot be hell-bent on sticking to your plan. If you want to succeed, you have to be much more focused on executing based on what is going on at the time. Very interesting stuff. I'm amazed. I I could sit here and listen to you talk about this for hours because I I do like hiking. And I know that you would think rim to rim at the Grand Canyon would be like, yeah, nothing. Just like, oh, that's hard. That's hard because you have the downhill first. And I love downhill. And normally the downhill is, I feel like that's the reward after the uphill, right? You struggle with uphill and you're like, oh, now I can go downhill. Gravity's working with me. You know, I can move faster. But with Grand Canyon, man, you go down first, then you have to go up. So how many times have you done that? I've only done the Grand Canyon one time. Really? Was it a rim to rim or did you just go down and go back back up? up. Okay. Because right now down at the Grand Canyon, it is 117 degrees. Yeah. That's crazy. Forget that. But that's yeah. like the, that's like the kind of reverse of being up on the summit. It is so cold. You just have to adapt. Yeah. That's just and you just realize like this. You know, typically like the pain and discomfort is temporary. It's just temporary, and you just got to get through it. You just got to suck it up and keep going. Yep. Exactly. Like it is so. I I say like it's so funny because like. Joe's never this quiet. And it's, it's so funny in this podcast. Like it is like, we're so in awe of you, Allison. Yeah. Like, it's amazing what you've done and your book and everything. I know why you're on the speaker circuit. I mean, you yeah. are going to have to encourage others to not give up, to lead, to keep going. And you're right. It's just, you got to suck up the pain. It's only yeah. temporary. But I think that's part of life. And I yes. think it's mainly, you know, I've talked about like pre-podcast, both of our, 
health issues. And it's just, you, you just can't put up in a ball and say, I'm done. You have to keep going. That takes, that's exactly. just the class and grace of leading through something. But like, you're such, it's just amazing to listen to you talk about your whole journey, right? Because <laughs> we get a lot of podcast guests on, we're always laughing. Does everybody's trying to like, no, 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 wait, 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 I have a question. I have a question. Let me ask you that. But like with you, it's just like, like it's amazing to listen to you talk about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, just let her roll. I mean, that's that's the that's best really thing we nice could have done. Guys. <laughs> it is like, it's just like there's just like so the thing is though, like I feel there's so much to talk with you about right now. On your well, you might have to have me come back again. I know. Yes. This is not this is not a Allison Levine podcast. This is a series of Allison Levine. One, All right, deal. I think about leadership is the big thing. I really want to hear you talk more about leadership. I, I think that, you know, leadership and overcoming odds, I, I would be just fascinated to hear your side on a, a lot of things that go along with, you know, especially trying to maneuver when things are really fluid. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's like, this is like the chapter one, like, like your, your journey, like we've even come close to talking about what it felt to be on top of the summit like the journey, yeah. like skiing over floating ice fields. I mean, like there's so much to talk about. Like we have to have you back on again. I mean, cause I just think it's, this is like kind of like one of those series you watch like your favorite show on Netflix or Amazon. <laughs> and like, but, but we, we, that's not, you can't end it like that. And you're just waiting every day for the next series to come back or the next season. Like we need to have you back on. Yes. I, I agree. And everything, but like it was so good having you on here. It was so good to see you and everything. Where can everybody, Allison? Where's a good place to find you to read about your journey? Where can they find the book? Well, book is on Amazon or any you know. I don't know if local bookstores what their inventory is like with COVID or if they're open or whatever. But Amazon's always the easiest way to get the book. I did the I I actually narrated the audio version, so people who like audiobooks, I did the I read it. And then my website's just alisonlevine.com with one L and Allison. You can reach me there. There's a little contact form. If anybody has questions and they want to get in touch, feel free to just shoot me an email through the website. I'm not super active on social media. I'm trying to get better, but I am on social media at Levine underscore Allison on Twitter and uh, Instagram, but mostly just pictures of my dog. <laughs> yeah, that's the best way to do it. Seriously. <laughs> All about the dog. When I get my book, like, you're going to sign it when I see you. Of course. Yes. Definitely. Oh my God. It was so good having you on, Allison. Like, we will definitely, like, you're coming back. This is my pleasure. My pleasure. We have another expedition with Allison Levine coming up. Joe, always good to have you. Chapter two, the Sarah years. (laughs) Sarah and Allison, so much to talk about. Joe, always good having you on the podcast with me. And this was a good one for us. So, Allison, thank you. And we'll see everybody next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider to learn more about the podcast or our guests. Log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.